Nuclear talking points. If you follow nuclear issues at all, you have undoubtedly heard your concerns about radiation coming from nuclear reactors and the possible dangers dismissed with the line, nobody died at Three Mile Island. In other words, sit down, shut up, you're just being a nervous Nelly and you don't know what you're talking about. It's a phrase used to dismiss any concerns based on the perceived lack of impact because of that nuclear meltdown just outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 1979, or anything that might be happening in your own backyard from your own local nuclear reactor. But then, you hear an experienced researcher in nuclear health consequences explain to you, The nuclear industry grabbed that, that slogan, Nobody Died at Three Mile Island, almost immediately after the meltdown occurred, before there had been any chance to measure how much radiation was released, how much actually got into the water and the food and people's bodies. It was an immediate attempt to stifle any type of research. When you hear epidemiologist and radiation health researcher Joseph Mangano, a genuine expert, say something like that, you start to see how we've all been gamed away from pushing for nuclear accountability, especially when it comes to understanding radiation dangers. And you begin to realize that it's all part of us being intentionally stuck in that awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Clear hot sea, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, We revisit an interview on the impact of radiation from so-called safe nuclear reactors with Joseph Mangano. He is executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project, an expert researcher on radiation issues, and an epidemiologist whose examination of medical statistics in the areas around nuclear reactors reveal a much different picture of their health impact than the nuclear industry wants you to know. We will also have Nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest information than Santa's putting under my menorah tree. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 14, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. There is a ton of nuclear news this week, and we will get to as much of it as we can. In a piece of good news, the New York City Council has adopted a powerful package of legislation which calls for the U.S. to join the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and includes legal obligations for the city in terms of divestment, education, and policy on nuclear weapons. 
The adoption of this legislation is a major milestone achieved due to the advocacy of the New York Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, NYCAN, and its allies. The passage of Resolution 976 calls upon the New York City Comptroller to instruct the $266 billion pension funds of the public employees of New York to divest from companies involved in the production and maintenance of nuclear weapons. Sounds a lot like don't bank on the bomb to me. This stands to impact approximately $475 million of U.S. funds in public investments. The resolution also reaffirms New York City as a nuclear weapons-free zone, prohibiting the production, transport, storage, placement, and deployment of nuclear weapons in New York City. A healthy round of applause for all involved in making this come about. So much for the good news. The Environmental Working Group has updated its database for the first time since 2019 and shows that radioactive material and pesticides are among new contaminants found in U.S. tap water. There are newly identified PFAS, which is a toxic class of forever chemicals, in addition to the whole lot even more forever chemicals from radioactive materials. Earth Working Group's database allows users to search for contaminants in water systems by zip code and provides a guide on which chemical water filters can remove what. You can find them at ewg.org. Meanwhile, here in Los Angeles, uranium is found at seven times the Earth Working Group health guidelines, which means that we all need something better than a Brita. In Virginia, the former senior resident inspector of the North Anna Nuclear Power Station pleaded guilty to making false statements on inspection reports. 60-year-old Gregory Kroon of Tennessee worked for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and was working at the North Anna plant between 2016 and 2018. NRC Inspector General Robert J. Freitel said, the accuracy of NRC inspection reports is critical to the NRC's oversight of the licensee's safe operation of nuclear power plants around the nation. Kroon's false statements could have jeopardized the safety oversight function. In Georgia, word that the Vogel Nuclear Units number 3 and number 4 may not be complete until 2014. At least that's what's being said now. Wait till we get closer to 2014 for the later extensions on this. Even if they fulfill on that 2024 date, this is nearly seven years beyond the project's initial schedule, according to two separate construction monitors. The construction team's use of unachievable schedules, a critical path that, quote, changes from day to day, end quote, widespread equipment performance issues during operational testing, as well as the use of unauthorized testing methods that damaged built systems, are all contributing to this delay. Until recently, Georgia Power had updated its estimated completion dates for Vogel Unit 3 to third quarter of 2022 and Unit 4 to the second quarter of 2023. But considering the nuclear industry's standard operating procedure of always coming in beyond completion date and over budget, there's no telling when this boondoggle is going to be completed let alone if it will ever be operational. The battle to extend the operating life of California's Diablo Canyon nuclear reactor, which is sited atop several earthquake faults, 
is now being pushed by former U.S. Energy Secretary Stephen Chu and Ernest Moniz, no surprise there, and several fashion plate TikTok influencers, who we will get to in a moment. But the Times points out that this push is misguided and largely divorced from reality. Their words, not mine. They went on to say the plant's closure should serve as an impetus for California to do more to accelerate the shift to renewable energy and set a realistic course to meet the state's target of getting 100% of its electricity from carbon-free sources by 2045. The idea of keeping Diablo Canyon open seems to ignore many practical considerations, including how to address seismic risks, the ecological harm of using seawater for cooling, and what to do with spent nuclear fuel. The cooling system and earthquake safety upgrades that would be required for the facility to keep operating after 2025 are so extensive that they would likely exceed $1 billion. The plant's operator, Pacific Gas and Electric Company, agreed in 2016 not to pursue license renewal, and the utility has shown no interest in reconsidering that decision. Nor has the Public Utilities Commission received any proposals to revisit its 2018 decision to allow the plant to shut down. But that hasn't stopped some airheads with money from pushing forward with what they think is a good idea. And so here we go. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Heaven protect us from online social media pro-nuclear influencers. Yeah, that's a thing. And now Grimes. It should be grimy. The single-named singer wannabe and, most notably, Elon Musk's recently discarded sperm receptacle and baby mother, has decided to become a social media influencer in favor of keeping the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactor in California up and operating. I guess even Rodeo Drive gets boring when you have more money than God and already own a full supply of face spackle, aka makeup. But why pro-nuclear, dude? And why lift your leg to pee all over San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, who have been fighting against Diablo Canyon for decades and know every reason why that nuclear reactor, which, by the way, is sited atop multiple earthquake faults, needs to be shut down now? Why don't you talk with them for your information? But no, she gets her nuke news from another social influencer, another glamorpus actress spokesmodel, good at keeping attention for all of 60 seconds on TikTok so the kids keep watching. But that's what we are up against. No nothings jumping into the glamorous high-profile world of pro-nuclear propagandizing based on faux fox talking points and weird makeup, which is what the kids tune into not us, and they don't know that they're going to get their brains warped by pro-nuclear nonsense while they're looking at makeup tips. So here's hoping that this grimy Grimes has a short attention span. After all, she was only with Musk for two and a half years and just stayed one year after the birth of their son. So maybe she'll find another tangent to go off on soon. Hopefully one that will not harm people or the environment. And that is why Grimy Grimes, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Meanwhile, does anyone understand what TikTok is and how it operates? 
We've got to start getting our message out in front of the kids. Moving right along, in Wyoming, billionaires Warren Buffett and Bill Gates have chosen a remote town in that state to build a new small modular nuclear reactor, an unproven design. Pending federal and local approval, the company TerraPower will build the $4 billion nuclear reactor in Kemmerer, Wyoming, about 130 miles northeast of Salt Lake City, with a population of only about 3,000 residents, meaning that there isn't likely to be much pushback. I find it interesting that this information comes from a site called Climate Crocs, because this claim that it's green energy and it's going to somehow save the world is just that. And an older article in People magazine that's just come to my attention asks, did late actor Michael Landon of Little House on the Prairie and Bonanza get cancer from filming close to a contaminated nuclear site? That site being the Santa Susana Field Lab in Simi Valley. For nine years, Little House on the Prairie was filmed just 15 miles away from that site. Landon was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in late 1991 and died in 1992 at age 54. Over to Japan, where the temperature of the groundwater at the remains of the Fukushima nuclear reactor site is observed to be rising despite continuous efforts to freeze the ground into what is being called improperly an impervious wall. It's not impervious and is referred to on nuclear hot seat as the slushy. On October 28th of 2021, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, announced a part of their supposedly impervious wall of frozen soil is pervious and possibly breached due to the rising temperature of the groundwater. From August to September this year, the temperature rose from minus 15 degrees Celsius to 10 degrees positive Celsius. 25 Celsius degrees, which equals 77 degrees Fahrenheit. TEPCO did not publicly report about it, and the cause has not been identified. But the effectiveness of this particular piece of technology has been questioned from the beginning. TEPCO has also admitted that it sprayed rainwater that had accumulated in tanks at the plant before confirming the safety of the water. In other words, they had not yet analyzed it for radioactive materials, a move that the All-Japan Federation of Fishermen's Cooperative Associations has protested, calling it extremely regrettable. Their linguistic restraint is hereby noted. TEPCO has been urged to conduct a thorough investigation of the cause of the accident and to take drastic measures to prevent its reoccurrence. Now, about TEPCO's planned release of the 1,280,000 metric tons, not gallons, as I mistakenly said last week, metric tons of radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean. There was an excellent article on Japan's upcoming nuclear waste dump published on power-technology.com and picked up by deunrenard.wordpress.com, one of my major sources. It's written by Robert Hunziker and very succinctly goes into all of the talking points we need to know about this not proposed but planned release of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. We'll have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 547. And for more international news, we have this out of the UK. 
Research finds significant concentrations of radioactivity in samples taken from across the Somerset and South Wales coast. This is a confirmation of the work of marine biologist Tim Deere-Jones, who spoke about this for Nuclear Hot Seat number 534 from September 14, 2021. The survey was undertaken over the summer by groups from both sides of the Bristol Channel after EDF Energy refused to carry out pre-dumping surveys on the Cardiff Grounds and Portishead Sea Dump sites where they have disposed of waste from the construction of Hinkley Point C nuclear power plant in the past. The study found significant concentrations of Hinkley-derived radioactivity in samples from all 11 sites. Meanwhile, EDF is trying to deny the difficulty here by saying that the sediment is, quote, not radioactive under law. But what about under science? We'll have an update on this by the dear Tim Deere Jones, early in 2022 on Nuclear Hot Seat. It looks like inside information from China could sink the French nuclear flagship EPR. Two French EPR design reactors were built in Taishan, China, as the only two out of 200 announced that ever went online. However, now one of the two is offline again after just two and a half years of operation, and it's not known whether it will ever be able to come online again. Evidence is growing that a design flaw affecting the entire EPR series has led to Taishan being switched off. This information came from a French nuclear engineer and whistleblower who gave the Radiation Research Institute, CRIROD, important detailed technical information from Taishan. In June of 2021, a CNN report from Taishan caused a stir because there was talk of an imminent radiological threat, and the Chinese security authorities were accused of having raised the radiation limit values for the outside area around the nuclear power plant in order to circumvent the shutdown of the defective reactor block. There has also been damage found to the cladding tubes, which led to the escape of radioactive gases in the reactor pressure vessel. This may be akin to the damage in the cladding of the fuel rods at the San Onofre nuclear facility, which was ultimately the reason why that nuclear reactor was shut down forever. In the EU, Germany has told France nuclear is not green and said that it will oppose French efforts to label nuclear electricity as green. It all boils down to money. The debate is about so-called taxonomy, which is the green labeling system for investors. France aims to include nuclear and gas as green investments, while Germany opposes atomic energy. Unfortunately, there are now 12 countries that have joined forces to pressure the European Commission to grant nuclear energy that green status, including Bulgaria, Croatia, Czechia, France, Finland, Hungary, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Sweden, and the Netherlands. The European Commission is likely to unveil investment rules for nuclear and gas on December 22nd, just in time to be buried and ignored in the Christmas holiday. It has been revealed in a new report that 27 London financial companies are funding the new nuclear arms race. In other words, don't bank on the bomb strikes again. The financial firms in London have been accused of using investment funds with links to the UK government. A campaign group report 
perilous profiteering, has named hundreds of companies involved in the nuclear weapons sector and their financial backers. An analysis by The Ferret, a publication, found that 26 were based in London and six have links to the Conservative Party, which plans to increase Britain's nuclear weapons arsenal. Is that the equivalent of insider trading? The Netherlands-based peace group PAX produced the study with the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Their report warns that financial institutions continuing to invest in companies involved with the nuclear weapons industry could face regulatory risks because of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which came into force in January of 2021. The treaty, which the UK has not yet ratified, bans nuclear weapons and has been signed by 86 countries so far. The UK government, which claims it is, quote, committed to the long-term goal of a world without nuclear weapons, said in March it would lift the cap on its nuclear arsenal by 40%, raising the number of weapons from 180 to 260 warheads. Then in November, the government claimed it had, quote, played a leading role by pioneering work in nuclear disarmament. Uh, no. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, last week, I shared that I was recently asked why Nuclear Hot Seat does not do the usual hammering away at our distribution list for donations on Giving Tuesday, Cyber Monday, and the like. The reason? I don't like getting hit over the head with repeated email requests, even by groups I esteem and regularly consult with for content. I give what I can when I can, and I trust those of you who have come to value the information of Nuclear Hot Seat will donate if, when, and as much as you can. But now, in the revamp of the website, which is due to come online in early 2022, it's been suggested that I create a Patreon page, where I offer premiums for people who sign up to donate on an ongoing basis. Of course, anything I would come up with will immediately be made available to the loyal supporters who are already with me. But the question this raises is, would this kind of a bonus induce you to donate? What kind of special information or report would you want? And on what topics? If you haven't been a sustaining supporter, what might entice you to join my loyal crew, the great folks who are truly responsible for my ability to keep Nuclear Hot Seat going? Let me know by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And while you're at it, whether you become a sustainer or not, consider celebrating this season with a donation to help keep us going. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red donate button. That's where you can send us a donation of any size. And know that that's where you can become a sustaining supporter of Nuclear Hot Seat without waiting for Patreon. All it takes is a donation of as little as $5 a month. The same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a metaphoric cup of coffee to support us. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here is this week's featured interview. The ongoing spew of radioactivity into our environment and its dangers are the subject of this week's interview. Tokyo Electric Power Company in Japan is planning, or threatening, to release radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific. And in Massachusetts, Holtec, the decommissioning company, is not asking but telling the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that they will release radioactive spent fuel pool water from the defunct Pilgrim nuclear reactor into Cape Cod Bay, meaning the Atlantic. 
So we thought this would be a good time to look back at a still timely interview on the impact of nuclear reactor radiation on those living near them, and specifically, the impact upon children. So this week we revisit an interview with Joseph Mangano. He is a health researcher and epidemiologist who has served as a director of Radiation and Public Health Project since 1989. Mangano is author or co-author of 33 medical journal articles on radiation health and is the author of the books Low-Level Radiation and Immune System Damage, an Atomic Era Legacy, and Radioactive Baby Teeth, The Cancer Link. Joe managed the study of strontium-90 in baby teeth and is continuing with that project. He has also managed the citizen-based radiation monitoring programs near the Indian Point, New York, and Oyster Creek, New Jersey nuclear plants. We originally spoke with Joseph Mangano for Nuclear Hot Seat number 418 on June 25th, 2019. Here's this week's featured interview. Joseph Mangano is a health researcher, an epidemiologist who has served as a director of Radiation and Public Health Project since 1989. Mangano is author or co-author of 33 medical journal articles on radiation health and is the author of the books Low-Level Radiation and Immune System Damage, An Atomic Era Legacy, that's a 1998 book, and Radioactive Baby Teeth, The Cancer Link, from 2008. He managed the study of strontium-90 in baby teeth and now manages the citizen-based radiation monitoring programs near the Indian Point, New York, and Oyster Creek, New Jersey, nuclear plants. This interview was originally heard on Nuclear Hot Seat number 354 from April 3, 2018. Joe Nangano, always great to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Likewise. Glad to be here. First of all, Let's give people an idea of your group. What is Radiation and Public Health Project, and how did it come to be? We are a non-for-profit research and educational group. The truth is that we shouldn't even have existed in the first place had the uh, nuclear industry and government been honest. When nuclear reactors were first built in the 1950s, there were several questions concerning the health of local residents. Number one, can we guarantee that there isn't going to be a major meltdown? Number two, how much radiation is going to be routinely released to the air? And number three, what are we going to do with the waste? The waste products produced in making electricity, but that has to be kept safe for hundreds of thousands of years. What happened was the industry and government kind of colluded and just said, we're going to set some limits of safe limits, permissible limits, they call them. You know, if you release below a certain amount of radiation, or if the air and the water and the soil has below a certain amount, you're allowed to keep your license, you can keep running the reactor, and we call it safe. Now, we are a public health group. This is in very good public health, all right? As a matter of fact, the radiation at low levels may be safe. But you've got to do the studies. You've got to prove it. You can't just assume it. These are very dangerous chemicals we're talking about, the same that are created and released when atomic bombs explode. So just about 30 years ago, two retired gentlemen, one a physicist and the other a statistician, put together this group 
And we have been at it ever since. 37 journal articles, eight books, 57 or so uh, op-eds, lots of media attention, and, and so on. That's a bit of background of what we do. What kind of information do you examine when you are coming up with your reports on what's going on around the nuclear reactor? Two things, dose and response are the formal names for them. By dose, we look at how much radiation is released from a reactor, how much exists in the local environment, the air and the water and the food, and the body. We did a study measuring how much radiation were in the baby teeth of 5,000 children, most of them living near nuclear reactors. To date, this is the only study ever done looking at how much radiation is in the body of Americans living near reactors. Now, that's the dose side. The response side, very simply, is disease rates and death rates near nuclear plants, which our public health departments actually do a very fine job of collecting data and making them available on the web, both the state health departments and, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's what our work really has entailed. We haven't gotten to all reactors, but we've done studies near a number of them, and we find consistently that red flags are raised about unusually high levels of cancer and infant mortality and other, other disorders, especially after a nuclear plant opens. Where do you find the numbers that you base your findings on? The big one is the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. They haven't gone out and, and done studies near, near reactors, but they've done a, a fine job in collecting data. In fact, there are 50 years' worth of statistics on mortality, on deaths in the United States beginning in 1968. Right online, it has it by state, by county, by cause of death, by age, by gender, by race. It makes it rather easy for us to um, do a lot of analysis down to the county level. That's the major source that, that we use. And for the uh, other side, the radiation side, how much is released and how much is in the environment, those come from the Environmental Protection Agency. Companies that run nuclear reactors are required to make these measurements every year and to um, report them. What you've been working on is called epidemiology, and you're actually the reason that I have any familiarity at all with the term. <laughs> it's the study and analysis of the distribution and determinants of health and disease conditions in defined populations. In other words, trying to work out why certain people in certain locations are getting ill. So let's take a look at some of the reactors that you have been studying. Let's start with Oyster Creek in New Jersey, which is scheduled to be closing in October of this year, 2018. How did that formerly low-cancer county rise to become a high-cancer county after the reactor started up? Yeah, Libby, I hope we haven't scared anyone with a big word like epidemiology. Let's make it simple. These are basic questions like, what are cancer rates like near nuclear reactors like, like Oyster Creek? Very simple. Again, if it weren't for us and our group and our work, the answer would be, geez, we really don't know. Nobody does studies on this. Oyster Creek is a, a case in point. It is a reactor that is in central New Jersey. 
It's about 60 miles from New York City, and it's about 50 miles from Philadelphia. Obviously, lots and lots of people nearby. Strike two on Oyster Creek, it is the longest-running nuclear reactor in the United States, and I believe the world. The day it first started operating and generating radiation and emitting radiation was May 3rd, 1969. So we're coming in, in on 49 years here. Yes, even though reactors are, were, were supposed to go to 40 years at maximum. Point three with Oyster Creek is that even though the statistics on what was emitted from reactors are a little thin, Unfortunately, the requirements are, are not very stiff because there are over 100 separate radioactive chemicals produced by reactors and, and emitted into the environment. A good system would be to make counts of each of them. There's only several that are counted. But one of them, iodine-131, We'll talk about it later. It's a chemical that affects the thyroid gland. It goes right, you know, when it's drank in the water and eaten in the food or breathed in, these little metal particles go right to the thyroid gland where it attacks and kills cells and leads to diseases like cancer. We found in the 70s and the 80s and the 1990s, Oyster Creek had the highest level of emissions than any U.S. reactor. Matter of fact, it had five times the amount that was officially released from the Three Mile Island partial meltdown in 1979. And this was just part of its normal operating. It wasn't like they had an accident that happened there that created some radiation leak. There was no meltdown. There was no shutdown by the government to saying that you're, you're releasing too much. None of that. These were all part of normal uh, operations. How did that impact the cancer rates in the area? Well, we took a look. We've actually been working on Oyster Creek for, a, for quite a while because our, our group is based in New York, and this is, not very, is very close to New York City. We did a whole educational campaign you know, in, in conjunction with, with local citizen groups. We even had a couple of celebrity supporters, Alec Baldwin and, and Christy Brinkley, and we went to uh, that area of central New Jersey and gave a, a number of public talks. We collected 600 baby teeth from the area and found a high and rising amount of another chemical, strontium-90, which goes into teeth and to bone. As far as the cancer goes, um, there, there's been suspicions for a long time near Oyster Creek. Back in the 1990s, the health department, the state health department, found a childhood cancer cluster. And a very long story short, after about 10 years of, of meetings and discussion, no official uh, cause of, of cancer was, was ever admitted to by the health department. In fact, they gave Oyster Creek, the nuclear component, very little attention at all. Years ago, when Oyster Creek first began operating, the cancer death rate in the county where it's located, Ocean County, was just below the New Jersey rate, 1% below. As the 1980s and 90s went along, it grew a couple of percent above the state rate, and in the 2000s, it was 8% higher. Now, going from 1% below to 8% above may not sound like very much, but let's turn it into real numbers and real people. If that original rate 
of 1% below the state had stayed, you know, all, all these past 49 years, there would have been over 2,500 fewer cancer deaths in this one county. Okay. That's jaw-dropping. That 2,500 is a lot of people. It's, it's a very populated county. There's about 600,000 in the county. We also found, too, that the largest increases occurred in the youngest residents in the area. We, we know, you know, scientists agree, that while every human who is exposed to radiation is affected, the greatest harm is caused to the very youngest. That is the fetus, the infant, and the child. And we found that the childhood cancer rate years ago was 23% below New Jersey, and now it's risen to 15% above. Again, we're, conver we're converting a low cancer county into a high cancer county. Are there other re possible reasons? Sure, there might be, but we don't know of any. That, that would call make this before and after switch like this, and we feel that there should have been more studies done. The health departments and the industry that ran the, the plant basically either ignored us or called our work. You know, they'll use terms like junk science. Do they have any proof that Oyster Creek is safe? Nope, not one. Given that this situation was found around Oyster Creek, are there other reactors where similar patterns have been found and where populations are suffering from similar consequences? Oh, sure. I could give you several, but the one I'll focus on is the other nuclear plant in New Jersey, and that's called Salem Hope Creek. It's a little different than Oyster Creek. Oyster Creek has one reactor. Salem Hope Creek has three. Oyster Creek is relatively small. Salem not only has three reactors, but each is about double the capacity of Oyster Creek. This is a big place. The reactors came online later than Oyster Creek from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Okay, so we did a similar study of Salem County, where this reactor is located. A little bit different. Oyster Creek is 600,000 people. Salem only has about 65,000 people. It's largely rural. Farming is, is the primary uh, industry, if you will, which should mean that there's no real worry about industrial pollution in the area. So let's go back. As the reactors were opening in the mid-1980s, the Salem County cancer death rate, just like Oyster Creek, was 5% below the rest of New Jersey. Now, in this decade, that 5% below the state has turned into 20% above the state. That's a 25% change. A 25% flip. And it, once again, it is highest in children, in young adults, and in middle-aged adults like we would have expected if nuclear emissions were a factor. We even found that there was a jump in death rates for causes other than cancer, all right, from 2% higher to 23% higher. And once again, we'll go to the what we call the excess cancer cases. Since, since the mid-'80s, we estimate that over 1,000 people died because these, these rates went up, all right? If they had stayed where they were back in the mid-'80s and continued for the last 30 years, over 1,000 fewer people would have died in this one small county. So we're getting a pretty clear picture that nuclear reactors under normal operating conditions 
create problems and have emissions and, according to the epidemiology, impact cancer rates and leads to an increase in them. But let's look now at what happens when there has been what the nuclear industry once upon a time assured us would never happen, which is an accident, meaning Three Mile Island. And the nuclear industry is fond of saying nobody died at Three Mile Island. Now there is a Facebook-based group, Three Mile Island Survivors, that has over 4,000 members who identify with that label. And these individuals claim a wide range of health impact from that nuclear partial meltdown in 1979. And there are reports of a large number of deaths and illnesses within their own families and communities. What does the epidemiology tell us about what really happened as a result of the accident at Three Mile Island? I'll start my answer by repeating what I said a few minutes ago, and that is the nuclear industry grabbed that, that slogan, nobody died at Three Mile Island, almost immediately after the meltdown occurred, before there had been any chance to measure how much radiation was released, how much actually got into the water and the food and people's bodies, and so on. It was a, an immediate attempt to stifle any type of research. Even though I consider myself a, a health researcher and a non-political one, we all understand that this is a very, very highly politicized area. And the example I'll give before we get into our results involves two groups. The first group was some researchers from Columbia University in New York. They got some funding from a group that was commissioned by a judge after the three-mile accident. Their mission was to go and, and do some research on whether or not there was a connection between the radiation released from three-mile and cancer in the local area. Very simply, their answer was no. There was no association. And they published an article in the American Journal of Public Health. I mean, these are, these are again, Columbia is, is a highly reputed uh, university, and these are all, you know, PhDs and, 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 and physicians and so on. And they gave, in the articles, they gave the data that they, they used. Well, along comes a group from the University of North Carolina School of Public Health, which I happen to be a graduate of, headed by a gentleman, Dr. Stephen Wing, with a, again, working with a group of his colleagues. Wing and, and, and the UNC people took the same data that the Columbia people used and came to a different conclusion. They only looked at lung cancer and leukemia within the 10-mile radius around Three Mile Island, and they found a, a high increase. As a matter of fact, it's amazing to me that Columbia came to that conclusion of no link because if you look at the number of cancers of people living within 10 miles of Three Mile Island and you compared five years before and after the meltdown, the number of cancers went up 60% from 1,700-something to 2,800-something. Now, you don't need a Ph.D. in epidemiology. You don't need a, a, an M.D. from Columbia or UNC to say, whoa, wait a minute, is this normally what happens in an area where our cancer is going up 60%? The answer, of course, is no. And what happened after that was essentially a fight that broke out in the medical journals. The Columbia people were agitated 
and called the UNC group, you know, politically motivated and, and, and all this stuff. And UNC just responded with explaining how, how they came up with this. Once again, I'm trying not to be political, but you, this is, a, this is a, maybe the, one of the better examples of how highly politicized this is. The establishment does not want to admit to one death. No one died at Three Mile Island because that means there's a lot of other people that may be suffering and dying as well. And that's why this Facebook group got started. I believe it's following in the steps of North St. Louis and the Just Moms there with what they've been able to create by growing the awareness. Let's move this ahead. You told me that you're looking into an analysis of cancer deaths in Burke County, Georgia, which is the site of the Bogle plant where they're trying to build two new reactors and coming into all kinds of problems. But do they have nuclear fuel on site yet? Are there radioactive fuel rods there? Or is there some other cause for the difficulty that people are facing? This is Burke County, Georgia. Now, it is a county that sits on the border with South Carolina, and the border actually is the Savannah River. We need to give a little history here. Right across the river from Burke County, Georgia, lies the Savannah River plant. The Savannah River plant was built way, way back in 1949. It formerly was a mostly farming rural area. This was not a nuclear power reactor, but it was a series of reactors that helped make nuclear weapons. At that time, of course, it was the Cold War, and the U.S. and the Soviet Union were engaged in a a frantic race to build as many nuclear weapons as possible. And the Savannah River played a major, major role in making these bombs. Of course, now it is no longer making weapons. We've stopped that when the Cold War ended in the early 90s. It's a large area, and it is highly contaminated, one of the most contaminated areas in the United States. And it's been cleaned up now for 20 years, and they're going to be at it for a very long time. So let's start there. Right across the river is Burke County, Georgia. A nuclear reactor has to be on a body of water because essentially the way a nuclear reactor makes electricity is to heat water up. Somebody called it a very dangerous and expensive way to boil water. The Savannah River is a large, wide river at that, at that point. It flows into the Atlantic Ocean. In the late 1980s, two nuclear power plants, power reactors, were built in Burke County, and they were called Vogel 1 and Vogel 2. They wanted a Vogel 3 and 4, but like many proposed reactors, they were canceled, essentially because they were expensive. But, of course, I always say that why the reactor is expensive, it takes a lot of money to build such dangerous machines. Burke County, again, is like across in South Carolina. It's a rural county. It's got about 23,000 people. Slightly over half are African American. The poverty rate is very high in Burke County, always has been. Okay, the unemployment rate is high. The proportion of inadequate housing is high. All, all the um, standard measures of poverty occur in Burke County. It's a poor county, all right? The idea of, of building these reactors in a formerly pristine area 
of course, raises the question, did it do anything to the health of local residents? Well, once again, you go back to the CDC website and look at what happened. In the 1970s, before the reactors opened, the black cancer mortality rate was 29% below the rest of Georgia. And that makes sense because we don't expect a lot of cancer in rural areas. We expect cancer, you know, in areas where there are coal mines or in big cities with a lot of industrial uh, emissions and so on. That number of 29% below now in the last decade is 15% above. And these are for blacks. Whites had, it, had an increase, too, in Burke County. Years ago, they were 1% below and now 12% above. Again, the poverty rates are considerably higher for blacks in Burke County than they are for whites. So what you're saying is that the radiation that is impacting the health of the people in Burke County actually comes from the other side of the river and this previous facility. Well, previously, some of it did. More of it in the Savannah River plant in South Carolina. More of it stayed in South Carolina, although some got to Georgia. Still, the cancer rate was below average. All right, it wasn't until they built those two nuclear reactors in Burke County, in Georgia, right there, when the cancer rates began to change from below average to well above average. And for the sake of clarity, we know that there are two new reactors that are under construction, but are there other reactors that are on the site of Vogel that are in operation and have been? The answer to both your questions are yes and yes. The ones that began operating in the late 80s continue to operate, even though they're getting older and corroding and, and leaking and, and so on. But in the, ooh, I guess about 10, 15 years ago, there was an effort to build new reactors. Building had stopped, essentially. So the last approvals for re reactors were in the late 70s because the people that financed it, you know, the Wall Street people, understood it to be very expensive and very dangerous. So this nuclear renaissance, as they called it, began, and there was a lot of discussion in Washington, and they all they did after years and years was, I think the number was $15 billion not to help build reactors, but in case a new reactor was built and they had to stop, that the builders would get their money back. There was a number of reactors that were proposed, every, like 20 of them. Almost every one pulled out. They said, you know what? We can't do this. This is going to take years and years to, to build these things. It's going to take a, a heck of a lot of money. We've got new types and safer types of, of energy, like solar and wind. Forget it. An exception was the Vogel plant, where the reactors three and four were not completely built, but the building process began, I believe it was about eight years ago. And there have been all these promises of, about when they're going to be finished and how much it would cost. Well, guess what? As the years go on, the expected year of opening keeps getting pushed further in the future, and, of course, the bill gets bigger and bigger. Right now... The construction is only about one-third done, and this is an, after about, I think it's about eight or ten years. That's very slow. That means it's going to take 20, 25 years or more to finish these things and an ungodly amount of money. There is a very strong citizen-based effort 
to stop the construction. And there's a lot of people who believe that these two reactors will never operate. And of course, part of it is the idea of environmental injustice or racial injustice in this case, that you're picking on a very poor area with a, a large proportion of African Americans and putting these dangerous reactors, more of these dangerous reactors there. That was health researcher Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project. You can read more about his important work at Radiation. Dot org. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Congratulations go to Carl Grossman, our eminence grise, who knows where all the bodies are buried, and is more professionally known as a journalism professor and longtime investigative environmental reporter. He and history professor Christopher Verga have just published Cold War Long Island, in which the authors explore not only the establishment of factories by firms like Grumman, Republic Aviation, and Fairfield Aviation to manufacture military equipment, but also the creation of military bases that housed nuclear-tipped missiles. The missiles housed in facilities on Long Island were, ironically, developed with input from former German scientists under what was called Operation Paperclip. And Carl goes into great length to explain what Paperclip was, how it brought more than 1,000 Nazi scientists, including Werner von Braun, to the United States, and how their work led to the development of detonating nuclear-tip missiles, which carried a payload of from 10 to 30 kilotons when the Hiroshima bomb was only 13 kilotons. We'll reach out to Carl in early 2022 to learn more about this book and what it contains. The folks working on getting Congress to extend and expand the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA, still need our help. This is about the survivors and victims of the July 1945 Trinity nuclear test, the first detonation ever of a nuclear bomb, which took place in New Mexico. The downwinders who were hit with radiation from that event have largely been invisible or forgotten. The expansion of RECA is a fight they are leading, asking Congress to include them and others in compensation for having had their health, longevity, and genetic downline impacted by this unsought radiation exposure. So they are encouraging you, me, and all of us to send more letters to our legislators. There are many more steps to attain victory, and Trinity Downwinders has a site which includes form letters and other information. You can learn more by going to trinitydownwinders.com or write to the woman who leads this fight, Tina Cordova, at T, like Tom, Cordova, C-O-R-D-O-V-A, at question.net. And a correction from last week's show. I was speaking about the amount of water, tritium-laced radioactive water, that Tokyo Electric Power Company wants to release into the Pacific Ocean from Fukushima. I said that it was 1,280,000 gallons of tritium-laced radioactive water, but it's not. It's 1,280,000 metric tons of tritium-laced radioactive water. Many magnitudes of difference there. My apologies for the confusion. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 14, 2021. 
Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, trinitydownwinders.com, sagharborexpress.com, laughingsquid.com, sfgate.com, latimes.com, westward.com, yahoo.com, people.com, insideclimatenews.org, climatecrocs.com, usatoday.com, enr.com, largsandmillportnews.com, nation.cymru.com, theferret.scot, japantimes.co.jp, dtnext.in, astantimes.com, goodnewsnetwork.com, euobserver.com, euractive.com, reuters.com, france24.com, chicagotribune.com, express.co.uk, thebulletin.org, marketresearchtelecast.com, interestingengineering.com, fukushima-diary.com, nhk.or.jp, power-technology.com, and be captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email each week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and sign up with your first name and an email link to the latest show. We won't bug you. We won't sell the list. We just want to make sure you get each episode as soon as it posts. Now you can help us out because if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to nuclearhotseat.com, and look for that big red button. Once you click on it, anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. This has been your nuclear wake up call. Now do not, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.